and turn to Psalm 58. I think if you've got the Blue Bibles, it's on page 577. It'll also be on the screens as well. Yeah, and as I mentioned before, um, we, we're looking at kind of five or six psalms over the next, well, last few weeks and the next few. Um, and we're trying to look at different psalms because we want to get a real good picture of how the psalms work, um, how it can feed us in different ways. And so this psalm is going to be quite different. Uh, I'm going to read it and then I'll kind of ex- explain what's going to happen. Okay. So Psalm 58. For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David and Mixon. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No. In your heart you devise injustice and your hands met out violence on the earth. Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears, that will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Now, I'm pretty sure as I read that at points, or perhaps through the whole thing, you felt pretty uncomfortable. Because the language and imagery here is hard, and it's graphic. And you might be wondering, why are we even looking at this psalm? Having just read it, I too am wondering that now. What was I thinking? But in all seriousness, here are some reasons why it's so important to look at the psalms, to look at psalms like this. Firstly, God tells us all scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. We want to understand and see the whole counsel of God, all of God's word. Secondly, my role as one of the pastors is to teach the church. Ephesians 4, that's a command. To teach us how to read psalms like this so that we aren't tossed around by the waves of culture and the world. And thirdly, I was just thinking practically, if, what if some of us were reading the Psalms in your summer readings and you came across, across Psalm 58 and you read it, I'd want us to be able to help you to understand how to read a Psalm like this. So those are some of the reasons why I think it's important that we, we dive into a Psalm like Psalm 58. But you know what we really need is God's help. And so I'm going to ask God to help us as we pray. And then we're going to look at this Psalm together. Father, we, we confess that uh, we don't like psalms like this because we like comfort. We, we like things to be nice and, and safe. That is the culture that we're in at the moment. But yet your word challenges and pushes us to see you afresh, to see the world afresh. Father, help us to, to see how we are supposed to approach injustice, um, how this psalm helps us to pray and Father, would that fuel us to trust you evermore, to see you as that good and righteous judge who is victorious. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, I've, um, I was born in the UK. I've lived in the UK all my life. I won't tell you how many years. But um, I'm older than anything. Anyway, one of the real skills I've noticed about British people is their knack of queuing. Do you know this? If you go anywhere else in the world, people don't queue like the Brits do. It's like a celebrated, iconic British thing. Brits just know when and where and how to queue. They queue for the supermarket, for the bus, for... I kid you not, there's a, I actually found a video on YouTube last night where they got someone in Covent Garden just to stand and start a queue. There was nothing there. He just, they just started a queue, and before long, there was a queue forming behind. <laughs> it's unbelievable how good Brits are at queuing. But here comes a problem. What do you do when someone cuts in? That's not how dare they. Injustice. How do you respond? See, I tend to see people react in one of two ways. You have the Coke can type people, okay? Let me explain. They get shaken up, they're flustered, they're simmering inside, and all you get is a <laughs> It's like, a, you know, it comes out in a small head shake or a tuck tuck, oh, muttering under their breath. But somehow they keep their frustration contained. All they needed was that little release. That's it. But then there are the other types who are like champagne bottles. They're shaken up in exactly the same way, but then they pop and explode. They will go over, excuse me, how dare you? What do you think you're doing? Do you think we're standing here for fun? Here's the point. What happens when we are wrong? See, injustice always evokes some sort of response because there is a cost. There is a cost to the person who's been treated unjustly, and they might absorb it like the Coke can. Or if justice is sought and action taken against the person doing the wrong, the champagne bottle will definitely send that person to the back of the queue. There is a cost involved. The question is, how do we respond when we are wrong? Here's what I'm trying to get at. With that, it's a silly illustration, but the point is this. We live in a society that has high regard for justice. From small things like queuing to much bigger things that impact all of life, how do we react when we are shaken by injustice? See, justice and equity, these things really matter. They are huge underpinnings of humanity, of how we function as society. We want some sort of way to know what is right and wrong. And within that, then to have justice to uphold those values. Without it, there is anarchy, chaos. What's one of the first phrases that kids learn? That's not fair. I hear it a lot at home at the moment. But I think today, in the culture, in the world we live in, there is much confusion about how to deal with justice. As society and humanity start to become more fractured, when we seek and call for justice, I'm not quite sure we know where to go. More and more people have lost their trust in traditional authorities, like the government, rightly or wrongly. And more and more people we see taking the matter into their own hands, as evident in the council culture around us. People place themselves in the judgment seat. And actually what that does is it leads to more fracturing. Then there's the alternative. There's cancel culture on one side, then there's the alternative. The Christian thing to do, turn the other cheek. It's one of those famous principles. Whether you're a Christian or not today, everyone knows about it. But is that what we do when we face injustice? Either cancel people or just suck it up, turn the other cheek, and just get on with life. The point is, the Bible gives us so much more. How do I know that? Because of Psalms like Psalm 58, which teaches us something about how we can respond in the face of injustice. And so as we approach this psalm, I want us to picture something as we, as we try and delve into it. Picture a courtroom, okay? In the courtroom, who are the key players? You have the person in the dock. They're the person on trial. 
Then you have the judge who makes that final call, who sentences them. Then you have the people making the appeal, making the case. That is sort of the picture that we're going to see in Psalm 58. So the first thing we need to start, start and figure out is, okay, what's going wrong? What is this injustice? That's the first thing. We see that in verses 1 to 5. Verse 1, do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? The problem is that there are these rulers who are unjust. Rulers can be translated as mighty ones. These are people in positions of influence and power who have some sort of authority over other people. There might be a spiritual element to this. It probably is. They're sort of representatives of the rulers of the air who stand opposed to God. But the main point is this. These rulers are rulers who are supposed to rule with equity and righteousness. They claim to be fair and just. Those words there of justly and equity in verse 1, they are used often of God himself, of how God is just and righteous. So these people claim to rule and do good just like God would. If you follow and submit to me, it will be good for you. That is what they're promising. These are people we're meant to look up to and to trust, who claim to have our interests at heart. But is that what they're really like? Verse 2, no, they're not. Far from it. I was actually cycling near Bermondsey the other day, and I was in one of those, you know, those new cycle superhighway routes where you've got two lanes for just the bikes? And I was cycling down, and then I saw a car. No surprise, there's a road there. Except the car was driving down the cycle lane. But the, it wasn't driving the same way I was going, it was coming at me. I don't know what was going on, but I knew that person was totally off. That's like these rulers. They aren't just slightly off. They're not just slightly driving the wrong way. They're completely off. The wrong way in the wrong place. Look at verse 2. In their hearts, they devise injustice. Their hearts are full of injustice, and that spills over into their hands that met violence. Verse 3. From birth, they go astray. This isn't saying, look, God has predetermined these people that they would live this way. God is sovereign. He can turn hearts of the most unruly ruler the point the psalm is making is this, that these rulers are, in their totality, wicked. It's the way they chose to live. If we saw their life from the day they were born until, the day they, until we see them today, there is no inkling of wanting to live for God and his righteousness. Look at the end of verse 3. They sit there spreading lies. That's one of the, the defining features of such rulers. They are so good at spin at deception, at covering up, twisting words and truths for their gain, claiming that they are for the good of the people, but in reality, far from it. It's like the serpent in the garden who claims to have the best interests of God's image bearers at heart, but he twists, he distorts, and lies. And that lie has caused unending destruction throughout the history of humanity. And these rulers are a window into that. Carry that, that image of snakes into verses 4 and 5. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears. Man, this can, this can set you down a YouTube black hole when you start watching snake charmers' videos. It's incredible to watch. It's mesmerizing. Snakes apparently can't actually hear. They, they just feel the vibrations. But anyway, but the point of the, the imagery is, is this. These venomous rulers cannot be tamed by anybody. Nothing seems to stop them. No amount of counsel can turn them from this way of life. 
The sad thing is this. I'm pretty sure we could name somebody who is like this, either from history or from our lives. See, how do you feel when you hear about politicians or leaders in big corporations lying, hiding things, deceiving the public? Their selfish gain at the loss of others. This has gone off the radar on the newsfeed, but what of those people in Ukraine? Or those in North Korea for the past 60, 70 years? Bring it closer to the West. Okay, what of people like those of the US women's gymnastic team, serially abused by Larry Nassar, who were supposed to be helping them and protecting them? What about the victims of people like Harvey Weinstein? Do you want to go further, bring it closer to church? How about victims of Ravi Zacharias? Man, I listened to that guy a lot in my 20s. It tore me apart when I found out what happened. See, how do you feel when trusted leaders of the church are found to have abused people with their authority, have treated people unjustly? We've seen a lot of that in the UK and the US recently. And in a room this size, this could well be a personal experience for some of you sitting here treated unjustly by those who claim to have your best interests at heart. Are you starting to feel the weight of what's going on? How do we respond to that? Well, here's what Psalm 58 teaches us. It teaches us to lament, to express deep grief and sorrow at the injustice and take it to God. Lament the injustice. That's verses 6 to 9. So you, we're back in the courtroom. The psalmist has come to their appeal before the judge. They laid out the evidence before the court, saying, look, this is what these rulers are like. And now they appeal to the judge. Please do something. In verse 6, we see the, the identity of this judge. It's, oh God, it's Lord. They appeal to God with the hope that the God they know will act rightly and justly. And the next few verses, they act like a prayer. But it's not like reading. This imagery is super hard. Start with verse 6. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let's kind of tie into what Matt was starting with. Picture Lion King. But this isn't the cute little Simba cub, but the venomous snake Scar who murders his brother Mufasa to take the crown for himself. That's what these rulers are like. Ravenous lions prowling and waiting to pounce on the vulnerable. David, the writer, he was a shepherd. He knows all about protecting sheep. And he knows that these people are a threat to the flock, to God's people. And so the appeal in the psalm is, look, please, God, disarm these rulers. Stop them from attacking us violently. Verse 7, let them vanish like water. Make their arrows weak so they can no longer harm us. It's a prayer for protection, but not as a shield, but by God weakening and dismantling these unjust rulers. The imagery that gets even stronger in verse 8. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. In other, in other translations, like a miscarried child that never sees the sun. Can I just pause for a moment? Because this image of miscarriage and stillbirth is hugely painful. It can be triggering for some of us in this room. And you know what? Our family is included in that. 
And I, I don't say that for sympathy points, but I say it because we need to be aware that statistically miscarriage happens in one in four first-time pregnancies and it can happen thereafter. And for those who've been through this, those who would love children and can't have them for whatever reason, this imagery is going to be so, so difficult. And we need to know, that this is a complete side note, but we need to know that this is something that isn't fair about the brokenness of this world. It's one of the deep effects of sin that we have to endure in this lifetime. It's horrible. But we need to remember this, that God cares for every one of those little children. And we need to remember that Christ has ushered in a new kingdom and will complete it in a new creation. And there we will no longer endure or face miscarriage, stillborn births, or infertility ever again. And I'd love us to be a church that can talk about this pain of childbirth and loss more openly. That we will be a real family that supports each other through these times. Because it can and has affected many of us. Now, having said all that, this psalm isn't directly addressing stillborn births or miscarriage, but it's using that imagery to open our eyes to see the gravity of the request of this prayer. That's what it's doing. To show it is huge. To ask God that it would be even better if these wicked rulers had not even seen the sun. But we need to feel the weight of this psalm and the injustice that's going on. The psalmist could only write that in the face of adversity that is so crushing. So wicked, so oppressive. They are in so much pain and sorrow, they don't know where else to go. So they're crying out something as heavy as this. Verse 9, I don't know what what it actually means. Uh, You might have a footnote. It just says, the meaning of the Hebrew of this verse is uncertain. It's notoriously hard to translate, but the point is that the wicked will be swept away. So let me tie all that together. Here's what we learn from this prayer, from this appeal. God is saying it's okay to lament injustice. God is saying, look, it's okay to mourn, to groan, and sorrow over injustice, to even ask God to deal with wicked people justly. The Bible gives us room and language to do that. Because God has made us human beings. We aren't just robots. And when we are met with injustice and violence from people who call themselves just and righteous leaders, we don't just hold a stiff upper lip and say, I'm fine, let's move on. Don't be Coke cans. Be more like champagne. Cry out to God using the words of Psalm 58. Cry out, God, I am broken. I am overwhelmed with sorrow. Cry out that these people are wicked and evil and they deserve some sort of punishment. Surely, God. Appeal to the judge. Lay it out in the rawness of your thoughts and your emotions. See, there's a right human desire in our hearts to see vengeance for horrendous and wicked things that we see, that we experience, and that we encounter. Because there is a longing in our hearts to see these wrongs made right. We don't like to see it, do we? And this prayer of lament allows us to express that within the safety of God. God, please, would you hear my prayer? Let me just pause and say, look, this might be you this afternoon. You might be in a situation where you are facing grave injustice from some person who's supposed to be looking out for you and looking after you. 
then I hope Psalm 58 are words that you can pray and pour out your heart over, out to God. That you can appeal to him in the ravine and valley of your emotions, of your pain, of your sorrow. And that you can cry out to him to deal with it. And that's the key thing. The third thing I want us to see is that, that we lament injustice with eyes on the judge. We appeal to the judge who is God. But did you notice, during the appeal, the psalmist never asked God for permission to let me go and do these things myself, to take vengeance myself. It's not, please, Lord, enable me to take revenge. No, it's, please, Lord, God, would you do it? God, I trust you. Would you deal with the injustice rightly? The psalmist appeals to God, expecting that God will act. It's not on me. That's what verses 10 and 11 point us to. And frankly, verse 10, I, I actually found, I find really troubling. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. I kept reflecting on this, going, how, how, how are we supposed to understand this? A couple of thoughts came to mind. First thing is, I think our culture in the West is, is quite sanitized in peace and relative comfort. So sometimes we don't see the gravity of injustice that some of our brothers and sisters around the world face. Now, I'm not making light of some of the things that we see over here in the West. There are definite injustices that we, see, we have seen in the last few years. But as I mentioned before, what about people in North Korea? What about people in Ukraine or Afghanistan or those under Boko Haram? Can you imagine the wickedness and the oppression they feel every day of their lives? And I wonder for them if verse 10 would make a lot more sense. Here's the second thing, more importantly. I think as Christians, we can often lose sight of God being just. Because God is just, he cannot leave wickedness without penalty. Somebody needs to take the hit. And the thing is, when Jesus comes to reign in full, he will come not only to save and, and call his people to the new creation, but he will come to judge. And in Revelation 14, 19, there's this image of a wine press of judgment, of those who will be crushed, who stand opposed to God. That's the imagery the Bible uses. Judgment will come. And this actually should drive us to have more assurance and trust in God. I'm not sure if you remember, in 2007, there was a horrendous case of, about a baby called Baby P. He was a 17-month-old baby who was abused physically and emotionally by his parents until he died. It was horrendous when you saw it in the news. And I sat there thinking, surely we don't want them to walk scot-free. And I'll confess, I, as I watched it, I was relieved and glad that justice was upheld. And my friend said to me after the case, I can believe in the justice system again. And it's like that with God. Facing injustice may sometimes make us wonder, does God really care about evil and wickedness in this world? And verse 10, verses 10 and 11 want to remind us, when the righteous see the judgment on the wicked and unjust rulers, they'll be able to say confidently, I can believe and trust fully in God's justice. That is what verse 11 says. The people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. And that should be a relief to God's people. So the psalm is actually ending us in comfort to say, look, God will judge rightly. And then we can leave that to him. 
Deuteronomy 32, God says, vengeance is mine. In my time, according to my will, we can trust God with this. But how can we be certain today that the wicked will actually be judged, that the righteous will also be rewarded, as verse 11 says? And this is where the psalm has to take us to Christ. We lament injustice as we lean upon Jesus, on Christ. Because Jesus knew what injustice looked like. He saw the rulers of the day, the Pharisees. They were meant to act justly. They were meant to act with fairness, to look after the people, particularly the weak and the vulnerable. But did they? No. Instead, they abused, they exploited, they put millstones around their necks. But here's the thing that I realized as I read through this psalm and reflected on it. The thing is, it's not just the leaders. Injustice is often more visible in leaders and rulers because of their visibility and their responsibility. But deep down, we should know that this is in all of us. We just haven't had the opportunity to show it. Humanity is actually strewn with injustice. See, we were meant to rule creation rightly and justly from the start. There's a quote from one of my favorite movies, Les Mis, Les Miserables. Justice is right only when it's impeccable. Justice is right only when it's impeccable. That is what it was meant to be like. There was meant to be impeccable, perfect justice everywhere. But ever since Genesis 3, we no longer live that way. We've since then treated God unjustly, dishonoring his place as the rightful creator, ruler, and king. And we see humans committing injustice to other humans constantly. That is exactly why Jesus came. Remember I said somebody had to take the cost of injustice. Well, Jesus came to take that cost. He endured that injustice to keep judgment falling upon his people. He paid for it by his blood. God pays for our injustice with his grace through the form of the cross. That is why when we put our trust in Christ, God says to us, I have dealt with your injustice through my son. He leaves us forgiven and restored. We sit justified and righteous under the umbrella and the reward of Christ's justice and righteousness and protection. The flip side of it is this, though. For those who don't put their trust in Christ and in his sacrifice at the cross, it means that we reject the payment Jesus made for injustice. God has to deal with it somehow. And so then Jesus will come to say, I will deal with your injustice when I come again to judge. See, the injustice that we see in this world will be accounted for, either covered over by faith through Christ's blood or through God's judgment for those who remain unrepentant, particularly for those who are in authority and who rule. Verse 11, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. So let me try and land this for us so we can sort of think how this applies. For some of us, this may actually convict us. Perhaps we know we have been unjust, that we've treated others unfairly, not in the way we should. Then this psalm says, lean into Jesus. Lament any injustices we have borne upon others. Bring them to Christ, repent, and turn to him. And know that at the cross, Jesus cried out as he was hanging there, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. For those who committed the injustice of crucifying him, that is what he prayed. And if you trust him, he's forgiven us. 
No matter how far gone you might think you are, if you've been unjust in your treatment of God or to others, repent, turn to Christ today, and know his forgiveness. For others of us who have or are facing injustice, we can lament with hope, knowing that Jesus faced the greatest injustice at the cross and was victorious. That's what we were singing about in the first half. It shows that he can and he will make things right. He will come back to judge the wicked who remain unrepentant. And he is coming to give us the fullness of his protection and his salvation into his kingdom where we will never again face injustice. Where our weakness and vulnerability will be covered over in full by our great king. And know this too, right now he sees you. He sees you in your weakness and vulnerability today. Just like he's seen every injustice in this world, he sees every person who faces injustice. So you can come to him and find comfort in the promises in Scripture to know that he never leaves you or forsakes you, that he walks with you today. And this leads on to a third thing that we think, I think we need to consider, that there is a call for us as his church, as the body of Christ, those who he has restored and redeemed, to act By his word and his spirit, we now see more clearly what God's justice and equity look like. And God calls us to see as Jesus sees. In Micah 6 verse 8, it says this, He has shown you, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Do you know what? In Christ, we can live in obedience to commands like this. And so together we stand up against injustice. Because I get for for some of us sitting in this room right now, you might be reading this psalm going, it doesn't really affect me right now. But it will affect someone else in this room. Verse 11 says, the people will say, this isn't just about me, but it's God's people together. So as those redeemed in Christ, we are called to lament and stand with those brothers and sisters who face injustice. So we pray that we would have hearts of Christ. That we can see, like Jesus did, with compassion and seek justice for those around us. That we can stand up for the abused. We can stand up for those who are persecuted. At a minimum, we should be praying for our brothers and sisters who are facing this around the world. Do you know what? In our weekly emails, if you get them, we always have this section with open doors about the most persecuted countries. I don't know if you've seen it. But why not tomorrow open that email and just pray for that country? Because for many of them, Psalm 58 would be huge words of comfort. And there's so much more we can do and see across this city. There is huge injustice, huge need. So let's go out with Christ's heart and his eyes with this gospel. We go out leaning upon Jesus, knowing that we can help with some things, but we can't fix everything. What we can do is as we try and help, we share Christ's grace and justice and point to the certain hope that Jesus will ultimately make all things right. Here's the last thing. I just want to close on this. The final thing is we need to still leave room for grace because God is merciful. He is still at work today and he's left time for his grace to abound before his final judgment. That means that there is no person far enough gone for God to redeem. Through the tears, through the lament, through the anger and the cries of judgment in Psalm 58, we can also pray for hope and mercy 
that God might redeem and transform for his glory. Now again, this is hard, but that's why we cannot do this in our own strength. But only by leaning upon Christ and seeing the depth of his love in the injustice that he faced for us. There's a great example of this in the last few years. Earlier I mentioned uh, Larry Nassar, the physician who seriously abused over 150 women in the US women's gymnastics team. It was horrendous what he was doing from a complete position of trust. One of those victims was a, a Christian woman called Rachel Denhollander. You may have heard of her. And there she was, much like in a courtroom scene befitting Psalm 58. There was Larry Nassar in the dock. There's the judge sitting there, waiting to sentence. And Rachel stood up to appeal her and many others' case. It's really worth listening to or reading her statement because it's deeply moving. But in it, what you see are patterns of Psalm 58, of lament. Ironically, she stood and watched as Larry Nassar held a Bible during his trial. And here are some of the things she said. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. She ends this, ends like this. Judge Aquilina, I plead with you as you deliberate this sentence to give Larry, send a message that these victims are worth everything. In order to meet both the goals of this court, I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. See, it's clear from these that Rachel is crying out for justice. Make it clear that evil is evil. Please judge rightly. And yet in her statement, she also says these things. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. So you see, in the deepness of her pain, of her hurt and her anger, she laments the injustice. She appeals to the court, to God, to show right justice to Larry Nassar. She appeals for the maximum sentence to make it clear that what is done was wicked and evil. But she laments with her eyes on the final judge. She knows God will judge wickedness rightly. But she holds that intention with leaning upon Christ to know God's grace is enough for even somebody like Larry Nassar, that he might know of his guilt and turn to Jesus. Rachel was given the freedom to lament her hurt and her pain and her anger because of Psalms like Psalm 58. But she could hold the tension of the rightness of God's judgment for wickedness and his immense grace and forgiveness by lamenting this psalm in Christ Jesus and seeing the power of the cross where justice and grace meet. Sisters, brothers, in the face of injustice, we have the freedom to lament and cry out to God. But let's do that with our eyes on the ultimate judge, trusting that he will make all things right, that he will punish wickedness rightly. But we can still lament. And let's lament while leaning upon Jesus, knowing that we stand forgiven in him, we stand protected in him, and let's walk with him to speak up against injustice, to stand together with those facing injustice and leaning upon Jesus to extend his grace because everybody needs it.